Friends, can I invite you to please turn uh, with me back to the portion of Scripture that we read earlier on in Genesis chapter 3, maybe with one eye on on verse 8, Genesis chapter 3. Over the the past uh, couple of weeks, as you know, Uh, St. Peter's has been running what's called a Hope Explored course uh, here in in the body of the the church. Hope Explored, where we gather together as a group and I was going to say we explore hope. Well, we gather together and we explore some of the essentials, the basics of biblical Christianity. It's a short course but we've been running that over the the past couple of weeks. Well, this past Monday, as we gathered, what we did is we explored together the idea of peace, peace. So we considered the reality that, that deep in each of us is the desire not just for a connectedness with each other, but we explored the reality that deep in mankind, deep in each of us, is actually a desire for a communion with our maker, a connectedness and, and relationship with our God. You, you see it, don't you? So we thought about, discussed, and looked at material where we realized that there's something in the heart of every human being that longs for God. Something in us that that longs for that separation or enmity uh, that we have with God because of our rebellion against Him to be replaced with something and to be replaced with relationship and an intimacy and a communion and a walking with the Almighty. Well, okay, it may be that as a Christian this morning, perhaps you're struggling with that just now. And perhaps you'd be quick to say that you long for a closer walk with God. Maybe that's where we're at. But maybe, do you know what? Maybe it's something else, is it? Maybe, Maybe there's someone here who would say that they have never, ever, ever known anything of peace with God. That though you're in here this morning, and though you can perhaps recognize, oh, maybe there is a desire to, to know God. That perhaps, if you're honest, you're not even sure how that peace or communion with God comes about. And so what we're going to do at St. Peter's this morning, for a short time together, is we're just going to pause. We're not going to look at the Gospel of Luke for a change in our morning services. And instead, we're going to turn all of our attention to one solitary verse in Genesis chapter 3. And it is a verse, of course, it's a verse where we're confronted with what sin has ruined, yes, but it is also a verse that shows us how fellowship with God, peace with God, communion with God really can be enjoyed. So before we look at it, let's ask God for help. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. We need to hear and be reminded of that gospel every day, every week. And we pray, Lord God, that as we come to you just now, that you would speak to us, remind us of who we are, how precious we are, what you've done for us, how close your church is 
uh, to Christ Jesus. Please speak to us. Please awaken us and refresh us and restore us and all for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's, let's look at this verse, but let's consider, let's consider it in three headings, I suppose. First of all, let's think about the idea of paradise and paradise enjoyed. There's the first idea. Let's think about Genesis and let's think about paradise enjoyed. <coughs> now, um, as we get going with a sermon like this, where, where you and I are really, as a church, just parachuting from nowhere into the middle of a chapter of Scripture, from nowhere, often what we will do is we will begin at this sort of point by thinking about the, the backdrop and the context and the situation, won't we, if we're just jumping into a chapter from, from, from nowhere? Well, I think it's fair to say that here, it's an understatement, isn't it, to say that the backdrop to Genesis chapter 3 is bleak, in fact, I'll go and I'll state this, and you're not going to disagree with it, that actually the backdrop here, what we have here is perhaps the darkest moment in all of human history. Don't you agree with that statement? Isn't it? I mean, what's happened here? So, so Adam, so he is, okay, he's the first man, but he is the representative of all the subsequent humanity. And Adam has been on probation, hasn't he? Adam has been faced with a sort of test of sorts. If he will only just obey God and refrain from eating from the fruit of a tree, of a, of a certain tree for a certain amount of time, how will he be rewarded? He will be rewarded. We would have been rewarded with eternal, everlasting life. But what does he go and do? Adam fails the test enticed by the serpent and reaching out for autonomy, Adam receives and eats the fruit that he's given from his wife. And he plunges subsequent humanity into mortality. And we're all destined from this point to face, eventually to face death. And am I not right in saying that as we come into this verse, there is a certain electricity and tension in the air. Because do you see what's about to happen here? Verse 8, what's about to happen is that Adam is about to face his maker, face his God for the very first time since Adam's treacherous act. So it's bleak, right? The darkest moment in all the human history. What have you got there? You've got the context. We're clear, aren't we? We've got the context, we've got the, the backdrop, we, we get it. But then, what about this verse? Because are you not, do you not find it a little bit intriguing? Do, do you not? I mean, uh, uh, what, is, what is it we're told that Adam hears? You listen to it. Adam hears the sound of the Lord God, wait for it, Walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Isn't that an intriguing idea? So like, what is being des described here? God walking in the garden in the, in the cool of the day. What does that look like? Like what does it even mean? Well, I think there's probably uh, two main options. I'll give you them both. So first, what, we, what might be being described here 
is God acting in a, in a mighty whirlwind? So that's maybe what we're dealing with here in verse 8. So God acting in the garden in a mighty whirlwind. So we've got verse 8 up on the screens. You can all see that. Isn't it actually great that we have all this technology in the church? I think it's great. I mean, it's great that we can project the Bible reading, especially up on the, the screen. That helps us. There is one big disadvantage to it. And that is that up here, behind my head, uh, we don't have the footnotes that sometimes accompany a reading. And the eagle-eyed amongst you will have noticed that there is a footnote to verse 8. So if you've got a copy of Scripture, you can look at it. And if you don't, I'll tell you what it is, because I'm a nice man. So, listen. The word for the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, it could be understood like this. The Lord God was walking in the garden in the wind. The Lord God walking in the garden the Ruhat, the wind. Now, if you just think about that, mull that over for a moment, you can probably see how some in church history have understood this idea and thought about Genesis 3, 8. Think about it for a moment. Think about Scripture. That just as in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came accompanied by what? by the, the, the sound like that of a rushing wind. Or just as, do you remember, Job, God spoke to his servant out of the whirlwind, out of the storm. So, so some in church history have, have understood Genesis 3.8 in that manner as being something similar. So what was it at this moment in the fall? What was it they would say that Adam heard? A violent whirlwind, like a, a storm, as, as God moves through Eden, moves through uh, the garden to do what? To summon Adam uh, to, be, to be judged. Do, do you see the idea? I'm sure you do. Now, I, I want to be clear that I think it could be that. That is perhaps what is being described. But I would also suggest that there are a couple of clear problems with that interpretation. And I reckon you can probably see one on the screen. So this idea of this wind doesn't quite fit with the language, does it? And the verb, what is God doing here? God is walking. So, so how, how is a whirlwind, why would a whirlwind be described in such, such a manner there's a wind walk. It doesn't quite naturally fit with that, with that language. But also, if you've got a Bible, you can just consider verse 10. See, there in verse 10, we're told the reason that Adam hides in fear. Now, if it's a wind, why, why would Adam hide in fear? Just because the noise and the violence of this rushing wind. But that's not why he hides in fear at all. Do you, do you notice it? He hides in fear because the eyes of his conscience have been opened. He hides in fear because he realized he was naked. All because of the sound of a violent crashing wind. So I think there is 
A second, I'm going to go ahead and say a preferable, more likely interpretation to this verse. Please hear it. What we have here is God acting in theophany, Genesis 3.8. I think most likely God here is manifest in a physical human appearance in the garden. Now, now, again, if you mull that over, what, what's your first thought? I mean, your first thought is surely that that does fit much more neatly with the verb that, that Moses is using here. God really is walking. He's walking in the garden in the cool of the day. But then there is another place in Scripture that, that supports that idea and, and it helps us. I, I wonder, maybe you can remember what happens. It's a real test, actually. But if you can remember what happens in Genesis chapter 18. Chris, I wonder if you can help us out. Oh, look at that. That was sharp, wasn't it? That was fast. Do you remember Genesis 18? Do you remember that three figures appear to... Abraham? Now, I, I want to suggest that I think that that, Genesis 18, that appearance is tied to Genesis 3.8 in a couple of ways. First of all, can you, do you notice in both of these that there is this really unusual description of time in both? Look at this on the screen here. So in Genesis 18, there's this appearance in the heat of the day. And what, what did you have in Genesis 3.8? You had an unusual uh, note about time. So in the cool of the day, and you, that, both very unusual but similar, if opposite. What else draws them together? Do you see it? We're told in Genesis 18.1 that one of those figures was a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord God himself. God appearing to Abraham pre-incarnate human appearance. Did you see it? What is it that Adam heard in the garden? I think most likely in a parallel with Genesis 18, he hears God, God himself, having taken on a human appearance, moving through the garden. Perhaps, as one commentator points out, perhaps Adam heard the Son of God in a the commentator says, in a pledge of his later incarnation, that that is what Adam heard. Now, hopefully you'd agree with your minister that this is, this is striking stuff in Genesis uh, chapter 3. The idea of God walking, moving, strolling, God strolling, moving uh, through Eden. But I want to tell you this, that there is something here, something else that is wonderful and it's had its claws in me all week. And I'm, I'm desperate for you to get it. So please hear this. What we have in Genesis 3.8 seems to have been the regular practice of Almighty God. Now, listen to me. Do you see what that means? The language in Genesis 3.8 seems to suggest that prior to, to the fall, God routinely met with Adam to walk together in the cool of the day. This was his regular, God's regular practice to walk with Adam in the cool of the day. And um, 
a chap, Wenham, who a lot of you have heard of. He's a sort of trusted Old Testament scholar. He says here that what we're dealing with in Genesis 3.8 seems to have been customary for our God. Another textual commentator says, the language of the walking and the meeting describes habitual aspects for God. Habitual aspects. In fact, perhaps some of you in here will know what I'm referring to if I talk to you about a passagiata. Do we know what that is? If anybody speaks Italian in here and wants to, to shoot me, at least wait to the end of the sermon, okay? Passagiata. See, have we even got the hand movement nailed, right? Do we know what passagiata is? Do we? So this is where some in Italian towns in the summer, when the heat, now think, when the heat dies off and the sun goes down, what do they do in the Italian towns? The people take to the streets and they dress up and they go out for a stroll in the cool of the day. Why do they do that? They do that to go out with their loved ones and they do it for conversation and, and communion with those loved ones. Christian friends, isn't it amazing to think that our Lord God did something with man prior to the fall? That though in Genesis 3a, God is coming in, in judgment, that prior to that, what seems to have been the case, that there was maybe even a daily meeting with Adam by our God to walk with him and enjoy communion in the cool of the day. Isn't it striking? Do we think about the fall enough? Do we see what was lost in the garden prior to the fall and with the gardener himself, with the creator himself, man, Adam knew peace. We knew intimacy. We knew love and fellowship with the Lord our God. There was paradise enjoyed. Second thing, Genesis 3.8. Oh, second thing. There was paradise lost. Paradise lost. Okay, here, as we move on, it kind of feels like you and I are controlling one of those roving sit-on video cameras that you get on a set of maybe a TV show or a movie, you know, the sorts of things that I'm talking about. Why? Why does it feel like that? Because all of our attention has been focused on the Lord our God as he walks through the garden in the cool of the day. But do you know what happens now? What happens now is that the camera moves, it pans round, and our attention changes, and we are to focus on something else. Someone else from God, where do we look? Now you and I are focused in on our first parents, Adam and Eve. So we've got verse 8 up. I, what I want to do here is simple, sounds strange, but what I want to do is I want you and I to ask the W uh, questions, the W questions briefly. You can work it out, I'm sure. First thing is we look at Adam and Eve here. First thing, 
What? Like, they hear the Lord God walking in the garden. The cold. What do they do? Can you see it? In, in short, they hide. And somebody points out something really obvious, but I hadn't thought of it in, until I read it. And it's the fact that our first parents and Adam here, he acts in such a childlike way. Don't you think? Isn't it childish? Just like maybe you did. Or I did. You know, in our infancy, when we have behaved, we've done something really bad. And we hear a parent approach. What does Adam do? I mean, he, he kind of scarpers at this point, doesn't he? And he kind of skulks back, doesn't he? And, and Adam tries to hide. So that's the first W question, what? But second W question would be, well, where? Like, where, where, where do they go to hide? Do you see it in the text there? Does it interest you and intrigue you? They hide amongst the trees of the garden. Isn't that amazing? That's where he goes, amongst the trees of the garden. So, so think about it. These trees that, that his loving God has created partly for Adam's enjoyment. Do you remember that from earlier on in Genesis? Like these trees that have been created for, for Adam, for, for partly for their aesthetic beauty. They're now a place of refuge for Adam from his God. And I wonder if you can, as the camera focuses you in on your first parents, you see him there? Is it not pathetic? And is it not a, a, a bit ludicrous? Like Adam there is just skulking off and he's trying to hide in the, the shadows of the vegetation and the, the, the foliage there and Adam and Eve, can you see them just cowering? Isn't it pathetic just like peering out from behind a tree? I mean, it's in, in some ways, it's absolutely ludicrous, hiding amongst the trees. Then the last of the W questions, I've had what and where, why? Friend, like, why are they doing this? I think the answer to that is the, the most obvious of the law. They are hiding there because the eyes of their conscience and the fall, they've just been opened and they are feeling things and sensing things that they have ne- Adam and Eve have never ever known or felt before in that moment. What did they know? They know in that moment the shame of their sin, the shame that you know because of sin. They, they know that shame and so they hide. What else? They, they know that fear that so often accompanies our rebellion against God. They know that. And so, so they hide. And what else do they know? They know just this overpowering, overwhelming sense of their guilt before God, having rebelled against him, having reached out for autonomy. Why are they hiding? Why do they hide? They hide because they know that that beautiful intimacy with God, that communion that saw, saw Adam walk in the garden, they know that's been ruined. That's been just broken and, and destroyed. Now, we, we said earlier that, that Adam was our uh, representative 
uh, before God, that all of subsequent humanity kind of follows Adam into a fallen nature. Now, I'll, I'll give you what I want you to contemplate just now. I want you to think about this. What I'd ask you to do is to think about how we also follow Adam in his behavior at this very moment in Genesis 3 I wonder if you can see what I mean. That what fallen humanity does today in this world, what we do when faced with our sin is we seek to hide from the God who loves us and has created us. And I'd ask you, St. Peter's, do you recognize that in your society? Do you recognize that in your world? Do you recognize that in your own heart? We hide. We seek to hide from God. You, you can see it, can't you? I think you can see it. By our sinful nature, we do not run towards God, do we? We tend to run away from God. Our sinful nature, we, it sees us want to hide from God. We can recognize that in our world. I mean, today we see some seek to hide behind a tree of denial, don't we? They seek to hide from God, just, just denying that God even exists. And we see others try to find refuge in the shadows of escapism. Isn't that right? Isn't that what you see in your world? So many people trying to distract themselves from, from their predicament before God. We look at Dundee, Broughty Ferry, we look at Scotland, we see so many people hoping that a tree of good works is going to hide them from the, the Lord God who approaches in judgment. People trying to hide from God. Well, what we have to understand, friend, and what this portion of Scripture makes so clear is that that can't happen. That it is impossible for us in our sin to hide from God. And if you are not yet trusting in Jesus Christ, not yet a Christian in this room, I'd urge you to contemplate that. I would, I would ask you, do you this morning before God, do you feel at least a prick of your conscience before your maker? You know, not, not yet a Christian, okay. But do you recognize in your life and your activity and your thinking that you have sinned against your maker and your God? Do you know that in your heart of hearts? Then understand that just as Adam's location in those trees was known all along, and that Adam was taken out to the bar of God's judgment, the reality is that one day, all of unrepentant humanity is going to be brought out from behind their trees. One day that will happen. One day they will hear something. They will hear God walking towards them and they will hear a sentence pronounced. Paradise was lost for us in our sin. So paradise enjoyed, paradise lost, but then wait for it. Because the third and the last thing is paradise renewed. Paradise renewed. I said right at the start of the sermon, when we were speaking about the context and the backdrop, that what we have in Genesis 3, what did I say? What was that phrase that I used? This is the darkest moment in all of human history. 
the darkest moment in all of human history. So I want to end by just inviting you to come with me to two of the greatest moments in all of human history. I wonder if you're with me, will you come with me to those? Two of the greatest, most wonderful moments in all of human history. So come with me first of all to the hill outside Jerusalem where Jesus died. Let's build up the picture. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul said in Galatians chapter 3 when he's describing the nature of Jesus' death? Do you remember that? Think about Galatians 3. Paul refers to the Old Testament practice of hanging up certain dead bodies. Do you remember? To be hanged on display. And then Paul says... Referring to Calvary, he says, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a, on a tree. The cross for Paul and then for Peter is a cursed tree. It's a tree. The cross is a tree. Then add to that what you learn in the book of Isaiah. Now, do you remember Isaiah chapter 53? And the prophet is looking ahead at Calvary. And do you remember what he says? He looks ahead and he says that there the Christ, the suffering servant, would be numbered with the transgressor. So, so Isaiah the prophet is reminding us that at Calvary was a number of crosses. At Calvary were a number of trees. Now, if you take that, and you look at that through the lens of Genesis 3 verse 8. Isn't it amazing what you see? I want to suggest that Calvary was an exact inverse of Adam's behavior in Genesis 3 verse 8. That just as the first Adam hid amongst the trees because of the shame of sin. So the second Adam came, that he might be displayed amongst the trees, all to bear the cost, all to bear the shame of your sin and my sin. Just as the first Adam hid there in the trees, the second Adam displayed amongst the trees for you, for the shame of your sin. And we wonder at that, don't we? And we surely wonder, well, what was secured there at Calvary? What was secured? And that takes us to the second wonderful event of the gospel. Because you see, in the Old Testament, remember that verb that we used, walking? God walking? Remember it? That was used of God's abiding presence with his people in the wilderness, in the tabernacle. And what the Old Testament people of Israel, they knew that if that abiding presence was to remain, there had to be sacrifice for sin after sacrifice for sin after sacrifice for sin after sacrifice for sin. So what was it, this beautiful and perfect once and for all sacrifice at Calvary? What did it secure? Do you see? It secured a return for Christ's church to walking with our God. It secured a return to the possibility of communion, of God's presence being with his people. In fact, if you think about the imagery of the resurrection of Jesus, 
Where was Christ Jesus raised? You say, a tomb? Where was the tomb? Yes. Christ Jesus was raised for us in a garden. What was the misidentification that Mary made as she looked at her teacher and her master and she cries out, it's the gardener. And maybe you know the name G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton says of that moment, as Mary looks at Jesus, Chesterton writes, and there, in a semblance of the gardener, God walked again in the garden, not in the cool of the evening, but he walked again in the garden of the cool of the dawn. Do you see what Christ has secured for his church? By coming to us, not in a theophany, but in real and actual humanity, Jesus Christ has secured for us the ability to walk with God again. You walk again with God in the garden in the cool of the day. That's the good news of the gospel. That paradise has been renewed for you. And so, so I, I end with just two very simple appeals. The first would be to you if you're a Christian, and all I would say to you is enjoy it. I mean, the, the, the folly of it, don't you think? I mean, God has done everything so that you might enjoy communion and fellowship with him. And what do we do? We ignore it. I mean, we, we, pay, we live our lives without reference to God. Can we not change that? Can you not change it? Can you not today go back to God in prayer and worship and praise, go to him in his word, enjoy it. Walk with your God in the garden in the cool of the day. But then the second appeal to you who, who, who's not yet a Christian, but I'll be more specific, to you who's not yet a Christian, but who is this morning troubled by your conscience? Troubled and, and see that you are separate, you are enmity with, with, with God. Oh, please understand in the gospel, God is inviting you to himself. God is inviting you in the gospel to communion if you wait for it. If you repent and believe, then you today begin a passagia. If you repent and believe, today you begin an intimate walking with God that will stretch from this day forth through the, through the rest of your life. You will walk with God into eternity. Why on earth would you turn down that invite? Why would you not accept that this morning? Friend, repent and believe and know today true communion and communion with Christ. Friends, let's bow our heads and let's pray.